Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. If you're a foodie, it's a good guess you're also a fan of food TV, and today's episode is going to be extra delicious for you. Back in the early days of TV, the public broadcasting system blazed the way in this genre with the one and only Julia Child, whose French Chef series changed the way Americans cook and eat. On today's show, we sit down with PBS's latest sensation, Chef Kevin Belton, whose fourth series is being aired in homes across the nation. Kevin shares all the fun he had shooting his latest venture, which features food from across our delectable state. Then, we'll hear from national food TV star Carla Hall, who's become a household name since debuting on the fifth season of Top Chef in 2008. And we revisit a very special conversation with New Orleans TV pioneer, Terry Fletcherich Rowe. Whether you remember her from childhood as WDSU's Miss Muffin or as hostess with the mostess of the Daily Midday Show, it's a good guess you were a fan. Get ready for a channel surfing safari on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, I'm Kevin Belton, a New Orleanian that happens to cook for a lot of people. For decades, chef, author, educator, and television presenter Kevin Belton has been teaching the foundation of Louisiana cooking to audiences from coast to coast. A natural-born entertainer with a big personality to match his six-foot-nine-inch frame, Kevin has become a popular host on PBS stations nationwide and on the lifestyle channel Create TV. He's long been associated with New Orleans PBS affiliate WYES, where his cooking series, primarily focusing on the culture and cuisine of his Crescent City home, originates. For his latest public television venture, Chef Kevin expanded his culinary purview to cover the entire Pelican State. In July, WYES premiered Kevin Belton's Cook in Louisiana, which follows the chef as he travels from parish to parish, exploring our state's rich and varied foodways in his fourth national series comprised of 26 episodes each. Kevin and his wife, Monica, also just released a companion cookbook of the same name, when the affable ambassador for Louisiana cuisine joined us in the studio, I had one burning question for him, something unrelated to either his book or TV show. Well, I just have to ask you this, Kevin. Uh-oh. 
How did you get to be Kevin Belton? It just, I never set out to be a chef. But I guess from hanging out, my, you know, Grand Central Station was the kitchen. So I always hung out in the kitchen. Okay, unless it was time to go to bed, then I was in my room. But I was always in the kitchen. And I got to watch mom and grandmother cook, prepare, and it was just in the blood. So when I got older, I started able to help. Then I had friends that had restaurants. So I'd go to eat, but every once in a while, I'd help them out. I'd go in the back, hey, you need a hand with something? And I'd help them out. And I, I kind of fell into business that way. Joe Kahn, that had started the New Orleans School of Cooking, approached me in 1990. He says, hey, why don't you come and work with me? And I started off as a store manager I, to learn all the products from around Louisiana. And my mom being a teacher, she says, pick up a book and learn anything you want to about anything you want. And so when I started with Joe learning the business of the retail, then the cooking side of it, I started reading like the professional chef's cookbook and going through that and taking notes and learning and yes. So self-taught. Yes. Born and bred in the kitchen. Well, you know, culinary school teaches you food. It teaches you food. It teaches you um, um, terminology. And it's not knocking culinary school, but you don't really learn how to cook until you come out. Okay? You might come out and think you know stuff, but it's not until you get on that line and you things happen. When you're cooking and all of a sudden something is going wrong in that pot, that's when you can have all the paperwork you want. But if you can't fix it, you're in trouble. And that's why so often when, when, when folks go out for interviews— you know, and they come up with all these papers, say, oh, I graduated from here, graduated from there. They say, hey, cook these three things off my menu. We'll see then. Let's talk then. Yeah. So it's that balance. It, it's great to go to culinary school because you get the practice. You get that terminology. You get to know all the equipment and how things should go and basically how not to kill anybody, which is important. And then you get to put it in practice when you start working. When did the love affair begin between you and the camera? Oh, goodness. You know, I am so shy. I am a shy person, but I don't know. I can just put that aside, and I look at that camera like I'm talking to a person. So back in probably the early 90s, I would go over to WIES when they would have the showboat auction, and I would read one of the boards uh, that were, were some of the prizes for auction. And then I started doing pledge breaks. And the, during the pledge breaks, these were little live, you know, five-minute segments that you're on air for 20 seconds at a time, but it's live. And that's where I learned to do live television. You know, a friend asked me, he said, hey, I saw you on TV. You get paid for that? I'm like, no. <laughs> I don't get paid for that. He says, well, why do you do it? I said, well, else can you learn live TV? You can set up a camera all you want and record all you want, but live is live. And mom says, always take advantage of learning anything you can. So that's where I learned. I learned live television from doing that at WIES. And who'd have thought that between WIES eventually led to being live on TV at WWL, and then to have the show on WIES that goes around the country that's recorded, oh, that was easy. Well, your new book, Cook in Louisiana, that is the companion piece to your latest PBS series, 
it covers every nook and cranny here in Louisiana. What were some of the highlights of that trip? It's, uh, oh, man, there, you know, we got to meet so many nice people. Ha- to hang out with Jody Mesh, who's the president of the Crawfish Growers Association of Louisiana, down on the Achafalaya Basin. And one of the sweetest people I met was the Tamale Queen in Zawali when we went to cover the Toledo Bend area. She was maybe 5'1", maybe 110 pounds, and won the tomato eating contest. She's not just the queen, but she wins the (laughs) tamale eating contest. How many tamales can you eat in 10 seconds? And she did something like 30, I don't know, something (gasps) crazy. Holy moly. Yeah. I learned so much about you in this book. I didn't even know there was a Lafouche crossing, much less it was someplace somebody could be from. Yeah, Lafouche Crossing. This is just a little south of Thibodeau, and that's where Grandma came from. What remains with you that Grandma brought from Lafouche Crossing? I think Grandmother brought probably just that welcoming, always open. You know, there was always, no matter who came over, there was always something there to eat. And that transitioned to my mother, to my dad, And I guess it's transitioned down to me because usually you go to visit someone, they'll offer you something to drink. Here in Louisiana, you go to visit someone, they try to make you eat. (laughs) And then it's like, oh, you need something to wash that down with, you know. But it's it's that's the interesting thing about this particular show I found out from traveling around the state. Because, you know, we always kind of thought of ourselves as a little separate. You know, those folks up there, those folks down here. Because South Louisianians, we have webbing between our toes. But I found out that everybody, there's just some type of warm spirit that you have when you're born in Louisiana. And I know every state has their own little thing, but it's something different about Louisiana. And I got to watch that with my grandmother and her aunt that would come to visit every other Sunday. So if I could just pass a little bit of that on and... I get to show people around the country what we're really like, not what they read in the papers and not what they think we are and think our cuisine is. But I get to actually show them, pull the curtain back so they can see the real thing. This is real. Where are some of the surprising places that people love to see Kevin Belton? It's interesting. I get emails from folks that are from here that live in other places now. But the amount of kids that watch, one guy told me that his son, he was out in his garage working and he was watching a show. And while he's working in the garage on the weekends, he has a TV out there and he puts the show on. He watches his cooking shows and I happen to be on. So his son comes out, and says, hey, dad, I'm going next door to play. And I think he told me his son was like seven years old. And he says, what's that on TV? He says, that's a chef named Kevin Belton. He pulled up a stool. And he finished watching the show with me, and then he went next door to play with his friend. And the next Saturday, he says, hey, is Kevin on TV yet? (laughs) And he pulled up a stool. So he says every Saturday now he sits with him, watches the show, and then goes and plays with his friends. And you never know how you affect someone. You know, but it's just that it's just that Louisiana comfort. So that's what we do. We visit over food. It's not that we're greedy. We use food as a way to visit. And I'm finding that it's connecting people to visit a lot more. But I get letters from five-year-olds, six-year-olds, or I'll hear from somebody in their 90s 
it's it's the whole gamut. It's it's such a blessing. It is always surprising when you discover about your fans from grade school because one of the things that has just tickled me in all the years that we've been on the air, there are a legion of children who drive their parents crazy by saying, Louisiana Eats. (laughs) (laughs) But it sticks. It sticks. It's so good. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm so glad that you stuck here in New Orleans with us because you give us such incredible pleasure all the time, Kevin. So thanks for all that you do. Well, thank you. Can I do it? Can I do it? Yeah, you can do it. You're listening to Louisiana Eats. Chef, author, educator, and public television host, Kevin Belton. You can find his 26-part series, Kevin Belton's Cookin' Louisiana, on WYES and on most PBS stations across the country. Check your local listings for air dates. For all series information and for autographed copies of the Companion Cookbook, visit wyes.org, where you can also purchase DVDs of past series. Coming up next, we look back on the life of New Orleans TV pioneer Terry Fletcherich Rowe, beloved host of Miss Muffin's Birthday Party and Midday on WDSU. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Since this show began in 2010, Louisiana Eats has spoken with some extraordinary people who have broken barriers in the cultural and culinary spheres. In 2016, we had the opportunity to meet TV legend Terry Fletcherich Rowe, known to a generation of New Orleans children as Miss Muffin, and to adults as host of Midday on WDSU. Here, the broadcast pioneer shares stories from her remarkable life, including her behind-the-scenes influence on the city's food history. 
I was born in Omsk, Siberia, right into the Russian Revolution. My mother was a dentist, very well known in Omsk. My father was a scientist and very well known. But when I was three, when the communists came, they chose him to start the first Soviet Chinese trade mission. And after he was there, he said for my mother, my older sister, and me. And it took us six months. <laughs> to travel there. Yeah, to get from Omsk to Tomsk, to Moscow, then Vladivostok, then Harbin, and then finally to Shanghai. It took us six months. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but I was very lucky because I was the youngest one on the train. And the conductor took me to the front of the train so I could see everything. And I did. I went to Hu Jiaoshui, the University of Shanghai, and I graduated in 37. But when I graduated, my folks gave me a little Austin. There was a beautiful hotel, the Park Hotel, so I would drive there, and they had music. It was almost wartime, and there were Navy people and Army people there, and there were some students for the university. So they would, the girls would love to come and dance with the Marines. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I loved the music, and I, I would go to dance there. And I asked the band leader, what music is that? It just carries me away. He said, that's jazz. Oh, okay. And where does it come from? Comes from New Orleans. So I was determined. I wrote in my diary, I am going to New Orleans. That's what brought me here. I read an ad in the Times Picayune when I was on the plane, actually, and I saw that there was a, an apartment available in the quarter. And it was 732 St. Peter. Yes. And you know what that address is. No, what is that address now? You don't go to Preservation Hall. So you come to New Orleans, and there's jazz music everywhere. And you come here as a young career woman. And from the very start, you were in media. I think it was WDSU radio. It was WDSU. Okay. And you were on the radio first. Mm -hmm. Queen for the Soviet Union. From New Orleans, the city where jazz was born, it's the transcribed Dixieland Jam Bake. Yes, from the studios of WDSU in the heart of New Orleans. There wasn't even television when you got here. There was only radio. I was the first one to produce a television program in New Orleans. And what was that show that you produced? Midday. It's high noon in the Crescent City and time to catch up on the news with a lot of people on Midday, 60 minutes of information and fun. Produced for you on Midday by Terry Fletcher. Hi, and may I wish you a perfectly beautiful day, another in a long string of lovely days. 
Uh, I'd like to contribute this quotable clip, which you might enjoy quoting to your husband tonight. That was a damn good show. It was a damn good show. It was a wonderful show. Yeah. And I remember you, you know, whenever I was sick and I was at home from school, I got to see you on the midday show. And imagine, you were a woman producing the midday show. It's a midday. WDSU's hour-long news and variety show for women and for men. Many men care to and usually do watch. The jambalaya of ideas and talent. Midday is produced and presented by Terry Fletrich, New Orleans' favorite woman personality on television. And that, believe me, is no idle boast. For in a recent survey conducted by Trendex, Terry was chosen as the top woman personality on TV over all other local lady telecasters and all network gal performers. You know, it's my guess that everybody in New Orleans feels like they know you. People still must recognize you oh, tremendously. I think they do. And some of them, they think they know me intimately because <laughs> they sat on my lap. <laughs> oh, of course, as children, when you were Mrs. Muffin. And you know why I started that? I wanted to have a kid's show because I was doing news and this and that, and I wanted to have a kid's show. So I started Mrs. Muffin. Honey, See that picture of Chef Paul yes. behind there? Yes, I'll yes. tell you about Paul Proudhon. He had seen me on television, but we had a lovely African-American woman who was on the show. Lena Richard. Right. And so when he came to the audience as a kid from Opelousas, he came to see the show. He said, well, I'd love to cook on your show, but you've got her. Can you help me in some other way? And I said, I hope I can. I live right across from Brennan's restaurant, biggest restaurant in town. So come have lunch with me there, because we already had a cook. And so he came, and then I introduced him to Ella, and away he went. photograph right here of you and Paul. What's going on in that photograph? I think I interviewed him on Mrs. Muffin about things that kids can do well, like cookies. And also, uh, Mrs. Muffin served birthday cookies to the birthday children. And we'd write their names on them, so I gave him one, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, who made the cookies on Miss Muffin? I think I did. I love to cook. And, of course, you wrote that adorable book, The House in the Bend on Bourbon Street. You wrote that book about the house where you lived mm -hmm. with your husband, the artist, Lenny Fletrich, mm -hmm. and your son. So who were some of the people who crossed the threshold at the House on the Bend of Bourbon well, Street? Well, I think we had anyone who came to town. Isaac Stern, what's wrong with that? And he was a very good friend of Lenny's from New York, and so we entertained him a lot. On midday, when I interviewed interesting people, and they had a few days to stay here, I interviewed them. Was there a particular meal that you liked for out-of-town well, guests to enjoy? Yeah, frequently, I made borscht and pilaski. And where did you get that love of cooking? I guess Shanghai. We had a Chinese cook, and his wife was my ama. But he was a Chinese cook, and he cooked Russian food. 
pilimeni, piroški, bošč, all of that. And then you leave New Orleans after Mr. Fletchrich passed away. Yeah, yeah. You go to Maine and you become the head chef at your inn? You're, you're, you're cooking at your own inn? We lived right on the coastline, Hancock, Maine. And then Chef Paul came and helped us start the kitchen going. <laughs> you know who Teresa Torkinovsky is? Yes. Okay. I was a cook. She was like a hostess. And it's still going, but it's doing much better than we had it because we were a bunch of <laughs> artisan idiots. <laughs> Best things in life happened by accident. Yes, you just have to keep your eyes open and we'll wait till you're a year and a half short hundred. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's the most amazing thing and such an honor to get to see you. Thank you so much for making the time for oh, us. Honey, thank you. I love meeting you. Terry Fletcherich Rowe speaking with Louisiana Eats in January 2016. The broadcast pioneer died on September 29th of that year at the age of is a chef and TV personality who was featured in two seasons of Top Chef before becoming co-host of ABC's Emmy Award-winning series, The Chew. Her guiding philosophy is to always cook with love. Combining her passion for food, people, and culture, Carla has written several cookbooks about comfort food. Her latest publication, Carla Hall's Soul Food, traces the history of soul food from Africa and the Caribbean to the American South. I had the opportunity to speak with Carla two years ago during Essence Festival, when our friends from the Jane Club in Los Angeles hosted a special gospel brunch, complete with Carla's legendary biscuits. While the band played on in the adjacent room, Carla and I discussed her fascinating life and career both on and off the screen. Carla, I have so many things I'd love to know about you, but I'm really curious, how did your TV career start? Because all of a sudden one day, there you were, larger than life, and you've been there ever since. How did that begin? You know, interestingly enough, I wanted to do theater as a young kid. So at 12, so I did theater from 12 to 17. So it took me from 17 to 42 when I did Top Chef to probably get back on television. But what a lot of people don't know, five years before that, I did a, a little show called Food Fight on the Food Network, uh, one episode, and it was a competition. But I, I think because of the theater, I'm not afraid to be myself in front of a camera. So whenever I'm there, I, I'm myself. I don't pretend to be somebody else or, you know what I mean? So I, I've been very blessed and fortunate. Your new book is about soul food. What does soul food mean to you, Carla Hall? Um, soul food, 
to me, and, and it's in the title of my book, soul food are those dishes that are celebration dishes like fried chicken and mac and cheese and, um, and greens and all of that, the, the food that I had at my granny's Sunday suppers, and it's also everyday food. So it is really more of a feeling. And, and, I, and I say in the book, what is the difference between soul food and southern food? And I simply say black cooks because it is the food that black cooks made for themselves. And to distinguish between southern food and soul food, you know, we came up with the title, we, um, in the 60s, soul food. But the food itself started long time ago, and I really think it's like the difference between a Negro spiritual and a hymn, you know? The way I understand it, you are approaching soul food from the place that your soul comes from and in order to do that you've had to meet the ancestors so who are your ancestors i had my dna done through african ancestry and i found out that my ancestors are yoruba from nigeria and the booby people from bioko island and there there's also um and i forget the tribe from ghana and hearing that and i i had I was surprised how emotional that felt for me because as, as a black American, you, you kind of feel adopted because you don't know your ancestors. You can't go back but so many years. In the words of Dr. Jessica B. Harris, she will say, because a lot of people are like, oh, I want to go back to Africa. She said, yeah, but you can't jump over the quilt to get to the kenti cloth. And that means that you have to honor all of the patchwork in all of our family that was here in the states but you can also honor the people who are in africa and she's such she's so wise and and i and i think that um i also have to honor you know the prices from tennessee and the the glovers and you know all those other people and this is the work that michael twitty also does by going back to these plantations and and that is a connection as well so um, the plantations are my quilt and the kinti cloth is my ancestry as well and how does it turn out when it's on the plate? Like the personal terroir, exactly. Um, whenever I make cornbread, I think about the native indigenous because without uh, the native indigenous and the corn here, because I, you know Africans came over with, with cassava, so they, they didn't have cassava here, they had corn. And so on my plate, I have cornbread, I have black eyed peas and, and collard greens or mustards or turnip greens. And then there's sorghum grains and millet. So all of those amazing vegetables. Well, there was something I read that just really tickled me. I understand that you weren't born an okra lover. Oh, no, I hated okra. Oh, my God. I hated okra. And I have four, in my new cookbook, I have four okra recipes. And as a chef, I can say why I don't like a thing. A lot of times people can't articulate why they don't like a thing. And I didn't like okra because it was slimy and it was a texture thing for me. And so in my cookbook, it's either roasted, grilled, or seared, you know. And, and so anything but boiled. I, don't, I, I can't do it. Carla... I know people have nap time, people have play time, but I never met anybody who has biscuit time. Tell me about biscuit time. Yes. <laughs> so biscuit time started with my friend Chadwick Boyd, who did the biscuit festival in East Tennessee. And I thought I was going to go to that biscuit festival 
festival because I love making biscuits and it was canceled and so he said well let's why don't we just get together and make biscuits because I was making biscuits with strangers in New York I, I would meet somebody and we'd start talking like do you know how to make biscuits because I feel like people especially in the north need to know how to either make a good biscuit or recognize one because don't send me to a place that you say they make great biscuits and I get there and they are terrible so we started doing these classes and we have like 300 people coming to our classes and it's a free I don't get paid for it I will do a book signing but it's really about the community of making biscuits and everybody has a story or a relationship around bread making or whatever and and it's all of these different people doesn't it doesn't matter what color you are it doesn't matter what part of the country you're from it doesn't matter what your sexual orientation when people come together to cook together it is something magical that happens you know and it's such a level playing field Carla it's obvious to me that you know how to love people with food would you talk to me a little bit about how you do that? You know, I, I believe that, um, you know, if you're not in a good mood, the only thing you should make is a reservation. So when I cook for people, I know that whatever the thing is that I make, it goes into somebody's body. And I, I honor that. I truly honor cooking for people. And food is a way to share love. And that's how I nurture people. I don't have a child of my own. I do have a stepson, Noah. But um, I think food is the ultimate way to tell somebody that you care about them. And when you go to a restaurant, if the chef isn't in a good mood, you, you, anybody, if you're cooking for anybody, if, you, if you're not in a good mood, your food will be messed up. So what you need to do is to leave, get clear, and come back, and to realize that it's an honor for somebody to take something that you made with your hands to put into their body to nourish them. Thank you so much for spending the time with me this morning. It was such a pleasure, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Well, Poppy, if you don't continue the conversation with me, I will come looking for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Chef, author, and TV personality Carla Hall speaking with us in 2019. was New Orleans' first TV food personality and just what made her so special? Stay tuned and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Louisiana's North Shore is turning up the heat for the annual Tammany Taste of Summer. 
plan your escape to St. Tammany Parish for delicious adventures in dining, hotels, and other places to play in Abita Springs, Covington, Folsom, Madisonville, Mandeville, and Slidell from August 1st through August 31st. Learn how to get your own Tammany Taste of Summer Pass by visiting TammanyTaste.com. Louisiana's North Shore, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Who was New Orleans' first TV food personality, and just what made her so special? In 1949, barely one year after New Orleans' WDSU-TV went live for the first time, the station debuted Lena Richards' New Orleans Cookbook shot on the first-ever family-style kitchen set built at their French Quarter location on Royal Street. This debut was particularly auspicious, as Lena Richard was a black woman who became a popular TV celebrity in the Jim Crow South. Tragically, Richard passed away in 1950 at the age of 58, leaving behind her brilliant cookbook, including 300 classic Creole recipes, originally self-published in 1937 as Lena Richards' Cookbook. Later, published nationally as the New Orleans Cookbook, the book is still in circulation. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Lena Richard certainly knew how to cook some good Louisiana Eats. I'm David Rosengarten. I'm a food writer, wine writer, TV chef, cookbook author, most important, eater. In September of 1993, a new cable network hit the airwaves that changed America's relationship with food forever, the Food Network. After being tapped to co-host the nascent channel's first show, David Rosengarten quickly became its earliest personality. From 1994 to 2004, David appeared in around 2,500 Food Network shows, including his own hit cooking program, Taste. David shared with us the story of how he became the first Food Network star and offered us a glimpse into the channel long before it became the sensation it is today. You know, you have to remember that when we started the Food Network, and I did the first show, as I think you said, we had no idea that this was even going to survive, that it was going to be a success. People didn't even know if people were going to tune in and watch stuff about food on television. Of course, there were always a few successful TV shows like Julia Child and, you know, that kind of stuff. But that was PBS. That was different. That was PBS, and it was sort of random. You know, you might see one every once in a while. To have a food network where the programming was about food 24 hours a day, a lot of people thought this is never going to work. This is never going to happen. This is the TV Food Network, 
The TV Food Network is serving up something for everyone. We all felt like we were doing sort of like the the high school TV club or something like that. We started in very uh, way down there on the economic scale um, premises. You know, we were in like a lousy little place on way on the west side of Manhattan. And then it caught on pretty quickly and it grew pretty fast. And, you know, within a year, we were in a really nice studio. And all of a sudden we all thought... Whoa, maybe people are going to actually watch this. On Food News and Views, award-winning journalist Donna Hanover and food and wine expert David Rosengarten update you on all the news that's fit to eat. This guy named Reese Schoenfeld, he had started uh, CNN with Ted Turner. So his specialty was starting uh, networks, cable networks. But he was not a foodie. He didn't know much about food. And he figured out, It's the Food Network, I know, but we need a centerpiece news program, just like we did at CNN. So that was that first show, which was called Food News and Views. And Reese would come into our dressing room every night and say things like, I think we got our story. It's bovine growth hormone or, you know, whatever. It's the credit card wars in restaurants. And Don and I would look at each other like, nobody cares about this. So he was really trying to make a CNN-style impact, which did not work. Ironically, if you started a network today and it was all about that kind of, you know, parallel stuff about food... It would work. This is the time. He was ahead of his time. Now, tomorrow on Food News and Views, we will hear a commentary from Julia Child. And Florence Fabrican of the New York Times will deliver the best produce buy of the week. So then how do you make this transition from food news into then you begin to do the stand and stir? Right. At the time we started, the second show, the third show, the fourth show was all that various personalities who have now slipped into uh, the mists of history. Um, But I walked into Reese's office just a couple of weeks into it. I said, hey, Reese. Hey, Mr. Schoenfeld. Um, I have an idea for a show. Yeah, what is it? Well, in every show, I would take one food or one dish and I would just do 30 minutes on it. I would tell the history of it. I would discuss the aesthetics of it. I'd cook it. I'd sit down and eat it with the proper thing to drink and so on and so forth. Reese looks up at me and he goes, okay, when do you want to start? Now, today you have to go through like 64,000 people and committees before you get somewhere. Literally, the man said to me, okay, when do you want to start? And we started about a month later. I know you're out there to cook or not to cook oysters that is the question it must have been really exhilarating it was exhilarating it was exhilarating technically the hard part is you know people who don't do tv maybe don't realize this but tv's hard because it's the only job that you could ever go to maybe modeling would be something like that but where you need to look like it's the best day of your life and you're totally fresh so at the food network In the weeks that we were shooting Taste, my cooking show, I would shoot 25 shows in five days, waking up at five in the morning, shoot all day, clear the studio for food news and views. Then I'd have to get my blow dry, come in as anchorman and look like, hey, it's David Rosengarten, it's food news and views, you know. Meanwhile, I've just done 25 cooking shows. I'm exhausted. But anyway, I'm not complaining. It was great. You must have been a very young man at that time <laughs> to have that man. sort of stamina. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it sounds exhausting just to yeah, do it. Yeah. But exhilarating, too. Because, you know, like when you're in a TV studio and the, there's a, it's usually cool in the studio uh, temperature-wise and uh, it's dark and then those lights go on and 
it's it's a rush, you know, it's adrenaline. And I didn't, I was so scared at first, I didn't realize that that would be the case. And now I'm never scared because I know my adrenaline is going to take over. But um, I was, somebody was co-hosting with me way back then, a guy from New York, who's known in New York, his name is Bill Boggs. He's done a lot of TV in New York. So he was brought in one night to substitute for Donna. And it was one of my first nights and we're in the dressing room and I go, Bill, I'm so scared. He said, what are you scared about? I said, you know, I'm going on TV. And he went, man, what's your problem? It's just TV. And that's the professional's attitude. It's just TV. You know, for for a normal person like myself, it was like, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to look like an idiot. And Bill's like, even if that happens, it's just TV. A mid-American treat. And with it, I'm going to drink a good mid-American beer. And I'm going to be halfway to heaven. This is food. Remember, life is a matter of taste. Bye-bye. I would be remiss to end this conversation without asking you to please give me your state of food TV mm. today. Now, we're it's so huge. We're talking way beyond, of course, the one food network right. that where it all began. But it, everything has gone in such bizarre directions in many ways, to me, it seems. You, you probably know, Poppy, um, I have a background in theater as well. So um, that's probably what helped me more than anything else when I walked into this virgin territory of food TV in 1994. I still apply the same standards that I always apply to any type of performance, theater, film, food TV. Um, I like people to be authentic. And... I find I'm a little concerned by the copycat stuff that's on TV, all the TV shows, um, beauty contests and reality shows. And, and you know, I mean, I, I understand it. It's, you know, not many people realize, but it's much cheaper to produce one of those than to write a script. <laughs> so there are all kinds of reasons for it. But I don't like it when people really are just playing the form I know that here's the moment where the guy presents the rose, and it, it just all seems so, you know, lifeless. Um, but oddly enough, when people have a, a reality to them and a spark to them, not to say that they can't lose it, but I'm going to tell you somebody, for example, on the Food Network that I still enjoy watching, Guy Fieri. Like, that guy, somebody might say, well, that's, you know, like dumbing down or whatever. However... When I watch him, I think he's into this. He enjoys this food. I like the kind of food he goes to. So you can do the format, the modern formats and stuff like that. Just be real. That's what I like. I hope we get back to more reality. I don't mean reality TV. <laughs> I mean reality, reality. <laughs> well, this is such an amazing honor to have this chance to sit and chat with the great David Rosengarten. Thank so nice you to talk so to you. much. Thank you. personality, author and chef, David Rosengarten. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. It's official. The last Sunday of every month, we're hosting a Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch at Two Jack's Restaurant with three courses, five drag queens, and of course, 
bottomless mimosas. Make your reservations now for what's guaranteed to be an unforgettable family-friendly experience. Call Two Jacks for reservations, 504-525-8626. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe to Louisiana Eats for extra content, including exclusive podcasts and more. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>